Portions of the following program may be pre-recorded. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
The message today is entitled, The Hugging Prophet. The Hugging Prophet. Almighty God, I thank you for your mercy and your kindness. I thank you for a prophet who would have a heart for hugging. Lord, would you just unfold this that our, that our hearts and minds could understand? Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. The name Habakkuk means literally embracing or hugging. So Habakkuk is the hugging prophet. Now, as you would suspect with a prophet who is interested in love, he would quickly get angry with God. He thought God was being very unfair, unjust. He thought God wasn't doing what God was supposed to do. He wasn't talking to him. The prophets, by definition in the Old Testament, waited on God for his message. They spent their time waiting on God, waiting for him to speak. And as soon as he would speak, off they would go to communicate the message. But God wasn't talking. And Habakkuk was angry. He was looking around and he was saying, look how unfair everything is in this culture. Look how everyone is committing violence one against another. Look how everyone's cheating in the courts. You go to court and you expect justice, and instead, the rich man rules. There is no justice in the court. So, God, no matter what I do, my love is being refused. And he finally, as he poured out his frustration, stopped for a moment. And in Habakkuk 1, verse God answers, finally, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your day that you will not believe even if I told you. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth, the sea's dwelling place is not their own. Habakkuk goes crazy. He wanted God to do something with the nation of Israel, with Judah. So God answers and says, okay, I'll do something. I'm going to bring the Babylonians as a switch, as a beating rod, as an axe against you. And Habakkuk says, wait a minute. They're more wicked than we are. How is that justice? How could you use someone more wicked than we are to punish us? Habakkuk does not want to hear about the judgments of God. He wants a hug. And he's pouting. He's angry. He thinks it's unjust and unfair. He says in chapter 2, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts that is, up on the top of the city wall. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer 
I will give to this complaint. Okay, God. I won't leave my place. This is where you've assigned me. I'm not going to leave my place, but I'm just going to set my feet and my teeth. This is the hugging prophet. He doesn't want to hear about this stuff. God, all I'm asking for is a little bit of love for your people. So he's going to wait now for God to answer. And the Lord, the Lord answers. Verse 2, then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. This is a very difficult passage in the Hebrew. Just as easily you could translate this to mean, write down the revelation and make it plain to those who are willing to listen so that they could escape the coming judgment of the Babylonians. And in fact, that's what happened. Many of the people heard God's word and fled Jerusalem before Nebuchadnezzar arrived. And they were safe. God hid them away. God continues and he begins to describe what he is going to do to the Babylonians after he's used them to punish his own people. Habakkuk responds by praying. I want you to see the difference. In the first two, he's not praying, he's yelling at God. God does not like to be yelled at. But finally, God begins to listen to Habakkuk pray. Chapter 3, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time make them known. In wrath remember mercy. He has a reason for praying, because now he wants something from God. He wants a favor from God. You ever notice when you're angry with someone, you can yell at them. But when you want something from them, you change your tone. You begin to speak in a kind manner, hoping you may yell at them again if they don't give you what you ask for. But you begin to speak very kindly. You know, a a son or daughter who's just had a fight with mom and dad. The next moment, they want a hamburger. Oh, Mom, I'm so hungry. Could we stop? I'll, I'll clean my room when I get home. Could we stop? I'm hungry, Mom. I mean, just such kindness oozing out of all the cracks. Until Mom drives by McDonald's and says, No, remember what you did? And then suddenly all of the anger returns. All of the bitterness comes back. You don't ever do anything kind for me. You're always mean to me. Because he didn't get his way. Or she didn't get what she wanted. 
Well, Habakkuk begins to say, would you renew your deeds as in ages past? In other words, would you, would you work miracles of deliverance for us? Would you kill the Babylonians? Would you in your wrath remember mercy? Remember, he's the hugging prophet. Would, would you remember mercy? Special, extraordinary love that is not deserved? Would you pour out this extra special love just for us? Aren't we your, aren't we your chosen people? Oh, Mom, Dad, aren't I your son? Aren't I your daughter? You know, would you do this for me just once? I'll never ask you again. Just this once would you do this for me? It'll tell me you love me. This is Habakkuk 101. But somehow, as he prays, the Holy Spirit comes and changes his heart. I heard, verse 16, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Until God begins to come close to us, and we begin to tremble in his presence, the arrogance continues. But when God begins to come close to us, we have to then begin to be honest. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. He's saying, okay, God, I see what you're going to do. I can't change your mind. Now, instead of getting angry, Habakkuk humbles his heart. And he says, okay, God, I see it. I get it. You've come close to me, and I tremble in fear because you've come close to me. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the, flu- and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. So he's saying, okay, you're going to bring judgment on us, and I know that there's not going to be any harvest. I know we're going into famine. I know we're going into hard times. I know it's your judgment that's coming. I'm just going to trust you in this judgment. I'm going to trust you when I'm hungry. I'm going to trust you when everything is lost and I don't understand anything. I'm going to trust you and I'm going to praise you. Now, how has this man gone from being the angry prophet, complaining to God, demanding his rights, suddenly he is humble before God. God came close to him. What we need more than anything else is for God to come close to us. When God begins to come close to us, all of that foolishness is washed away. That's the message of Habakkuk. It's not a very complicated message. 
But in the midst of all of this, there is one phrase that we need to look at. It's not a phrase that Habakkuk gives us. It's a phrase that God gives to us. And this will utterly, radically change our understanding of the gospel of Jesus. It's in chapter 2, verse 4. He is speaking about the Babylonians. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. What does that mean? Let's translate it literally from the Hebrew. The lawful, that's what righteous means here. The lawful shall live, or more literally, shall be kept alive, shall be revived. In the process of dying, he's going under. He's revived suddenly. He begins to breathe again. He's kept alive by his faith. But the word faith that's used here in the Hebrew literally means not faith, but firmness, moral fidelity. Let me read you the text now with the literal interpretation from the Hebrew. The lawful shall live or shall be kept alive by his firmness or by his moral fidelity. Now let's take that passage and go to the New Testament because this passage is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament, there are several words that can be used, translated as faith. Go with me to the book of Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verse 38. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. Now, righteous in the Greek is not translated identical to the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the word faith is firmness. So let's look at this word, righteous, in the Greek. It's dikasune. In Old English, it was interpreted or translated as right-wiseness. Now, it was translated this way because there was no exact English word that coincided with the word righteousness or dikasune. There are three words that have to be used to translate the one Greek word. Those three words are justice, right, and to know. So a righteous man was a person who was allowed to understand the claims of justice 
the claims of what is right and what is wrong. And he is a person who, knowing them, acted in according to their demands. So a righteous man in the New Testament is a man who is innocent. A man who understands what the issues are, a man who understands what right and wrong is, and then who acts according to that rightness or that righteousness. And so, in verse 38 of Hebrews 10, but my righteous one will live by faith. Now, the word faith in the Greek is pistis. It is not an exact translation from the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it means firmness, but in the Greek, it means persuasion. Now, I'm giving you all of these nuts and bolts, not to bore you, but to try to give you a framework to understand what the Lord wants to say to us today. If you look at Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And you see there the Hebrew influence in firmness. Faith is something that gets a hold of something and doesn't let it go. He is persuaded. He is firm. He doesn't flow back and forth. He doesn't go with the tides. He understands what's happening. And then when you connect righteousness to this, it's a person who knows the difference between right and wrong. And he understands his bent toward evil. And he chooses to walk by faith. And we're going to go deeper with this. I want you to go to the book of Romans, the first chapter. Romans, the first chapter, verse 5. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith or to the obedience that comes from firmness or persuasion. So we have to really stop a minute and say, what are you persuaded of? Do you really understand you're standing before God? Do you understand none of us in ourselves can be saved? We're going to be lost. If we continue in the ownership of our lives, we cannot be saved. We will be lost. Only those who surrender their lives into the hand of Jesus can walk by faith. But now I want to show you the wonder of what I'm talking about. Chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the dunamis or dynamite of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness 
a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Again, referring back to Habakkuk. So do you understand now we have to translate and, and take Habakkuk's understanding of this verse to understand where we stand today. And Habakkuk is saying, the person who understands and knows the difference between right and wrong must stand firmly. Now, if there's anything I'm not able to do, and that, that is to stand firmly. I was crying out to the Lord. Yes, Lord, this is what you want me to do. And before I was born again, I would want to do what was right, but I couldn't do it. I had no firmness in me. I wanted to do what was right. I wanted God. I wanted to follow him. I wanted to be a Christian. But then I'd go do things that were utterly dark. And then I'd be in despair and I'd say, I can never be saved. Look at my condition. I want to do it and I can't. What am I going to do? I guess I'll just do my best and hope things work out. Well, nothing worked out. My heart only grew more sad, more despondent, more hopeless. I knew I could not do what was right. But it says the righteous will live by faith. Do you see it does not say the unrighteous will live by faith. An unrighteous person cannot live by faith. There has to be a born-again experience where I'm transformed, where I give up the ownership of my life, and I give it into the hand of Jesus. And then he says, there's a righteousness that does not come from keeping the law. There's a righteousness that doesn't come from trying so hard to do what is right. There's a transformation that can occur in your life. And when that transformation takes place, you then walk in firmness. You then walk in joy before the Lord. You then walk confident before the Lord. You don't walk weaving this way and that way like a drunkard. And we've been drunk on the world. And some of you are still drunk on the world. You come to church and it's like nobody's home. How was the service? Well, it was okay. You missed the whole thing. You were there in your body, but in your heart you weren't there. Your heart was out in the world. Your heart was on what you're going to do and what you feel and what you think and who you are. There has to come a place where we give up who we are and where we begin to cry aloud to God and say, would you change me? Would you transform me? Would you make me into a new person? If, if the gospel of Jesus is not about transformation of a person's life, then it's just another psychological deal. And I don't want anything to do with it. But the gospel is not a psychological deal. It's where the power of God has the ability to come in, to come close, so that I will give up my pride 
even as Habakkuk gave up his fighting with God and finally just melted and said, God, I've seen you now. You can tell whether someone has just heard about God or whether they've seen God by how arrogant they are. Arrogant Christians have just heard about God. But when we've begun to really see God, all we can do is say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Change me. Make me righteous. Make me righteous, God. Look with me at this passage in in Romans, the third chapter. I'll begin reading verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are made righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Through what in his blood? Through firmness in his blood. Through absolute confidence in his blood. Persuasion in his blood. This is the gift Jesus has given to us, that we can be made righteous, not by keeping the law, not by trying hard, but as an act of God's mercy and kindness in my life, so that I'm transformed into a new person. But see, this is what the issue is. I cannot be changed and transformed into a new person while I hang on to the old. As long as money is what I'm after, as long as pleasure is what I'm after, as long as I'm seeking after everything to fill that hole in my heart, except Jesus Christ, I cannot be made righteous. I have to let go of that ownership of my bitterness my anger, my judgments, my accusations. I have to release to the Lord Jesus my time. Oh, time is probably the most difficult thing to give to God. God created time. It all belongs to him. But somehow we've been deceived into thinking that our time belongs to us. And we can hustle and make it in our time. We can make love in our time. We can make peace in our time. We can make money in our time. We can make happiness in our time. All it's going to take is some time, and I can do whatever I want to do. I can do it. Our time has to be given over to Jesus. We're not the ones who make the money. We're not the ones who make the joy. We're not the ones who make the peace in our heart. All of these things come as gifts from God. So our time has to be given over. Okay, but wait a minute. I only have so much time. What am I going to do if I give all of my time to God? And there's no time for me to go have a good time. That's exactly the point, isn't it? The devil said, I will have a good time. 
I will go do it my way. I will ascend into the clouds. I will be above the Most High. I will have that burger whenever I want it. I will have that Slurpee whenever I want it. I will have my whatever whenever I want it. I will feel bad whenever I want to feel bad, thank you very much. Now, all of that has to be given over to Jesus. See, righteousness is understanding what is right and wrong. And it's justice. It's not by accident that the Supreme Court has Lady Justice with the balance. That comes straight out of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. That concept of justice is Jewish. It's God. It's weighing things in the balance. Remember what the Lord said to Belteshazzar. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. This night your kingdom will be taken from you. Right now God has you in the balance. How is your life weighed out before God? Wouldn't it be something if we had a a scale right here and had each of you come and stand on one side to see if your life balanced with God's word. How would you weigh in? And would you be weighed in the balance and found wanting? Oh, don't don't think that you would be heavier than God's word. Just the opposite. If you're walking in sin, you would have no weight before God. And so you'd be up here. And the word of God would be down here on the floor. How would you weigh in today? This righteousness made up of right doing, made up of justice. It's a gift that's given to us. It's a free gift that's given to us. There's another passage that I want you to look with me at. Galatians, the third chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 11. Galatians, the third chapter, verse 11. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. All of my life, I heard that faith meant believing that something was true, even though I couldn't see it. And that is accurate, isn't it? Faith does mean that. But it means much more than that. Faith also means absolute firmness and fidelity in action. Faith, in fact, is an action. Faith is a verb, not an adjective. Faith is an action verb. It's something we do. The righteous will live by faith. 
the righteous will live by walking in firmness before God, standing on the promise that righteousness is given to us as a free gift and not something we earn. You cannot establish your own righteousness. Some of you are really struggling with this. Because you think by going out of here today and doing your best, that's going to make you righteous. But righteousness doesn't come by our doing our best. Righteousness comes as a free gift of God. Now, I'm sure you've already caught the difficulty in what I'm saying. How do I get the righteousness? If I have to have righteousness to walk by faith, how do I get the righteousness? It's only found. It's only attained to the man or woman who is willing to go into the prayer closet and give up his life, to surrender his life, to give into the hand of God everything that I've created, everything that I've desired, everything of my heart, I give that freely to God, and he gives back to me righteousness. It's called the exchanged life. If I don't give my life, he won't give me his righteousness. Could you imagine the Lord dwelling in a place that is a habitation of demons? The demons would have to be cast out before he'd walk in. They would flee from his presence. The Holy Spirit's not going to come and dwell in your heart as long as you have ownership of your life. As long as you're trying to establish your own righteousness in your own way, as long as you have your schedule and your things planned, you cannot be righteous. Righteousness comes as a free gift by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we receive this gift, we no longer walk in sin. Now the hard part comes, and this is why I said in the prayer closet, because if you'll be honest with me, if you go in the prayer closet and begin to ask Jesus to take your life, he's going to say, okay, but what about this? And what about that? Are you sure you want to give up your party night? Are you sure you want to give up your redskins? Are you sure you want to give up playing around? You sure you want to give up smoking? Are you sure you want to give that up? Because as soon as you say yes, he'll take it. And because you know he'll take it, you don't want to give it to him. This is the struggle of the prayer closet. This is why we have to cry out to God, not so God will answer us, 
I mean, the only time God won't answer us is when we're interested only in a hug. God's not interested in hugs. He's interested in righteousness. The hugs come later. He wants us to come in with him into a place where we will begin to lay down our lives in those specific areas that he asks us, will you give me this now? Will you give me your impurity? Will you give me your lust? Will you give me your anger? Will you give me your pride? Will you give me your defensiveness? As he goes through all of these things, as soon as you say, Lord, I give it to you, it's gone. He takes it. The victory's won. So some people can pray through in 10 minutes, but most of us it takes hours, maybe even days. Because we have a whole thing of what we own and what we want to hang on to, and we don't want to surrender that. And what I'm hearing the Lord say today is, let the illusion be broken that you can continue to hold on to anything and walk in righteousness before God. And as Habakkuk said, if you can read this warning, then flee before the day of judgment comes. Flee before the day of judgment comes. Almighty God, hear the cry of our hearts. Lord, we've believed a lie that we could hold on to a part of our life and we could have part of your righteousness and that then we'd be okay. Lord, you want to take us to a place that's much different, much deeper, much more profound. You want to know us. And Jesus, I want to know you. I want your seed to remain in me. And I want to remain in you, Jesus. Lord, would you come close to us like you did to Habakkuk? Lord, would you cause us to tremble before you and to melt that all rebellion would be removed from our hearts? All animosity toward you, all bitterness toward you, Lord, would you just deal with it now? All hostility to you, Jesus. Would you remove the hostility of our hearts against you, Jesus? Lord, the devil's convinced us that bitter is sweet and that sweet is bitter. Would you give us a true understanding of how things are? Lord, let us today see things for what they really are. Thank you, Lord.
Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. We're a house church located in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our mailing address is Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Come visit us at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you.